Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Well, you might be wondering why we've called the exhibition Wanderlust. It requires a little bit of explanation. Joseph Cornell's life and art revolve around a central paradox. He was born in 1903, but during his 69 years on planet Earth, he never once left America, and he spent his entire adult life within the confines of New York State. But as those of you who know his works will realize, he traveled far and wide in his imagination. So wanderlust, of course, is the desire to travel, and it is, after all, a state of mind. Motifs of travel can be found throughout Joseph Cornell's work. Here, for example, maps, compasses, and what appear to be specimens from some expedition. Or in this small work, um, images of exotic countries recording an epic, if fictional, journey around the globe. And it's an incredibly simple structure, but a very powerful idea to be able to sort of scoop up the world and put it in your pocket. Cornell doesn't, however, stop at, um, at the terrestrial world. He also explores the heavens, too. For instance, in this work, Hotel Andromeda, which features a personification of the constellation, and she's floating through nebulous skies um, amid the names of French 19th-century hotels, evoking the nostalgia and romance of the travels of a bygone era. So these adventures are in stark contrast to Joseph Cornell's own life, which was anchored at um, a very ordinary house that you see on the left, um, with an extraordinary named street, Utopia Parkway, um, near Flushing in the suburb of Queens. He lived there from 1929 with his widowed mother and his younger brother, Robert, who was disabled. He suffered from cerebral palsy, um, and whilst he was physically incapacitated, he wasn't mentally incapacitated. But uh, the care that, and bond between the brothers was incredibly strong, Joseph donate, um, devoted much of his daily life to caring for his brother. And so he really chose family duty over any romance of his own. He never married. And he remains a sort of enigmatic character, as I think the portrait on the right, taken in 1969, suggests. But there is a sort of myth out there that Cornell was some kind of recluse who never, ever left his home. And that just frankly isn't true. There's no basis in fact. He was in and out of the house all of the time. But I think the myth perhaps arises from his very unusual journey to becoming an artist, for it wasn't a typical one. He had no formal training in art at all. He couldn't draw or paint or sculpt. Um, and the story begins really in the 1920s. At this time, he was the family breadwinner, having lost his father at a young age, and he was traveling between the borough of Queens into Manhattan, um, working fairly menial nine-to-five jobs, particularly as a textile salesman. Um, he really didn't like his job very much, but what he did love was the city. He loved the energy of riding the trains and watching, watching all the um, energetic street life, and it also opened up a new, whole new world of culture to Cornell. You get the sense of a young man who's really sort of seeking something else. He's a bit bored with his job. He's slightly tied down by his family. And his lunch hours were his sort of means of escape. And he would browse secondhand bookstalls. He would go to museums, visit, hear concerts. Um, and he begins to sort of undertake this kind of very sustained um, research into all things cultural. 
And then what follows is that he begins to collect items relating to his interests, such as books. He was an avid reader with the most amazing memory, and he becomes very knowledgeable about subjects as various as astronomy and ballet. And then he collects photographs, engravings, um, 19th century travel guides, and uh, he really is in some sense in the tradition of that, uh, the, the 19th century travel logs, um, often referred to as armchair travelling. So taking the Grand Tour of Europe in particular, which is a continent of great interest to him, sort of taking that tour in your mind's eye through the process of collecting and reading. So the collecting comes first, and then the making, and then the making in turn sort of uh, accelerates Cornell's love of collecting objects, paper ephemera and things. In the late 1920s, there's some evidence that he begins to experiment with trying to create works from his collection, particularly scrapbooks and potentially some early collages. But the defining moment is really in 1931. At this time, he has um, been temporarily out of work because of the Great Depression. And he, on his wanders of the city, uh, walks into the gallery owned by a man called Julian Levy. And in this, Cornell's timing is impeccable, as it often was. Julian Levy was about to become the first promoter of surrealist art in America. Following on, I mean, surrealism until that point really had been a European phenomenon. And uh, following on from the early experiments of Braque and Picasso in Cubist collage, collage still remained an avant-garde art form in the United States. But seeing collages on the walls of a gallery, Cornell realized a context in which he himself could become an artist, someone who never had any formal training before. Within a few months, he's exhibiting collages in an important surrealist show, one of the first in America, on the left. And within a year, he has a solo show that includes collages, small objects, shadow boxes. And um, Cornell, in fact, designed the typography of both of these announcements. So he's really uh, working very closely with Julian Levy on this new promotion of this new type of art. And within a decade, he had kind of perfected what the signature format that he's best known for now, which is the glass-fronted shadow box. Um, an example here is this wonderful palace that we open the exhibition with. And uh, the, the architectural facade here has been taken from his very extensive collection of architectural prints. Um, and he's transformed it by turning all the windows into mirrors. So they reflect you when you go in closer to see what's happening, what you see as yourself. And windows in many guises and reflections, um, including the structure of the shadow box itself, were really a central motif for Cornell. Having returned to part-time work in 1934 and continued to pursue, he continued to pursue his art by night at the kitchen table, sort of in his stolen hours. But in 1940, Cornell makes the very bold decision to commit himself entirely to making art. And he sets up in the basement of Utopia Parkway this rather marvelous studio. Um, these photographs are taken in the 1970s and I think they reveal the final extent of Cornell's collection, which numbered tens of thousands of papers and objects, um, all kinds, all manner of different things. And Cornell is a sort of strange mix of the very practical. You can see on the right his uh, collection of tools, and they're all ordered and very organized, um, and his, the bottles of glues and varnishes that he used to make his works. But the collection that he had in his studio was also a sort of a resource for his imaginative ideas. 
Uh, you can see here a close-up of the shelves, and these are cartons and shoeboxes, whitewashed and filled with source materials. And on the left, you can see his stacks of paper dossiers containing all manner of clippings. And in some respects, Cornell is constructing his own private universe, a personal museum of every corner of culture, almost like an extension of his, his own mind. And the wanderlust idea really does entail collecting, making, and traveling as all being part and parcel of the same creative process. So what began as an interest in distant places and times that he, he knew he would never visit but was interested in sort of emerges as Cornell's guiding artistic concept, this idea of voyaging. And here we have some examples of the contents of those source material boxes. As you can see, there are many and various natural objects, artificial objects. But the important thing is that most of them don't have any intrinsic worth in themselves. He defined the things that he was interested in collecting as anything of human interest, so very diverse. And I think it's his uh, very instinctive love of found materials that really drove him to make art. He loved the connection of these found materials between everyday life and art. And I think that we can all relate to the power of objects and, and images to hold memories and stories. As children, we collect things and we invent stories around them. But equally, as adults, we collect souvenirs from our own travels. And um, one thing that's important to sort of state right at the beginning is that Joseph Cornell would never, ever be drawn on the meaning of his artwork. He didn't like people to ask him questions about it, and he wouldn't answer them if they did. He's sort of constructing in his basement this amazing myriad weave of associations that, for him, were very important, but I don't think he had an expectation that people viewing his works would be able to sort of decode and decipher them. It's not really his aim. What he wanted really was to, in the shadow box, to create a stage for the viewer to come up with their own stories and their own imaginary travels. And in that sense, he's an artist who is um, profoundly non-elitist. Um, so we know that he was self-taught, but he was incredibly well self-taught. You know, his erudition in many different subjects is remains incredibly impressive today. But he did like to talk about himself within the amateur tradition as a self-taught artist. It's something that he played up. And I think it's because of this sort of non-elitist attitude that he did that. However, if, if one were to tell the truth, in actual fact, he was incredibly involved in the professional art world. Right from the 1930s, when he's exhibiting with the Surrealists, through the 1940s, he exhibits alongside um, figurative painters of the neo-romantic movement. In the 50s, he's at the same gallery as the Abstract Expressionists, and in the 60s, pop, minimal, and conceptual artists. And he was admired by the successive avant-garde, I think because of the independence of his artistic voice. So his work wasn't a private hobby, he exhibited it all the time, and he had many personal friendships with key players in the New York art world from Mondrian to Warhol. So um, one in particular that's probably a good one to point out would be Marcel Duchamp, who wrote in 1951 that he thought Cornell was one of the most important American artists practicing at that time. So Cornell is both successful and prolific, by 1967, he had made enough work to have two entirely separate retrospectives on either side of the United States, one in California and the other one um, at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And in actual fact, he was only the fourth American artist to be given this honor of a retrospective at the Guggenheim. And that gives you some idea of his standing in America today. Um, but of course, he remains unfamiliar here because there have been so few exhibitions of his work.
Um, and this sort of gives you an idea of taken the left 1933 by Lee Miller and on the right 1972 gives you a sort of idea of the Cornell was working on the periphery of the New York art scene um, for all, all that time. So it's been my job to condense the many, many works that Cornell made and present a concise selection of 80, which we have upstairs. And my ambition from the beginning was to present a very um, concise selection of his very best works and to explore within that selection the range and variety of what he achieved, albeit working on this very intimate domestic scale. Um, that's something that's easier said than done, because some of Cornell's works are easier to travel than others, particularly the ones with uh, internal moving parts or very complex structures. And so we've had to work um, over quite an extended time frame with specialists in conservation and transport, and that's often required kind of opening and disassembling some of the works and packing parts of them separately and then putting them all back together in the gallery. And as we've done this, we've discovered various instructions that Cornell has left us um, so that we don't put things in the wrong place. But it gives you a sense of um, how he really did see his art in terms of public context. And also, he wasn't fussy about it. You know, for example, in case of mirror breakage, you know, just replace the mirror. It didn't have to be his hands necessarily that did it. But that's not to say that um, his works are sort of random. Um, there's nothing... There's nothing random about them. In fact, another one of Cornell's artist's friends, Robert Motherwell, wrote in the 1950s about the depths of his deliberateness. And this is a phrase I've come to understand more fully over the past few weeks as we've installed the works. Everything is very carefully calibrated. Um, and he's often combining very subtle combinations of visual and tactile elements to make these works that really do speak of a completely unique vision and they reward close attention as much as any painting or drawing. And he's sort of working with objects and the memories and associations that they might bring, um, just, as, just as a painter would work with different types of brush strokes or textures. Cornell's diverse interests are paired with a highly elastic notion of time. Um, he didn't have a sort of linear understanding of time at all. In fact, the past was just alive to him as the present, and his work is often about forging connections between distant places and times. So for that reason, we haven't gone with a chronological uh, hang upstairs. I've decided to structure the exhibition in four thematic sections. And these sections explore Cornell's artistic methods and processes and how he thought about his creativity in its broadest sense. And they are also intended to sort of draw out themes that, themes and concerns that span the very, very various subject matter that you're going to see in the exhibition upstairs. So the first of these is play and experiment. Um, and in this section, we look at the range of different formats that Cornell worked in, um, from collage and assemblage, even to film, and also address this kind of characterization that's persisted about his work as being toy-like. Further to that, there's also the recognition that Cornell was interested in so many different disciplines that science is just as an important, just as important a context for Cornell as art. In fact, he even referred to his studio as a laboratory, and there very much is something of the trial and error about the way that he put things together, saw how they worked, and then tried something new. So just to return briefly to Cornell's biography, and in particular his childhood. So his father died when he was just 13, and prior to that, um, he'd had an idyllic childhood. 
So his change in circumstances came really as a shock to the whole family. They discovered that they were in debt. But prior to this, they'd lived a prosperous life, and um, they lived in a small town called Nyack on the Hudson River. And Cornell's childhood and that of his siblings was characterized by this very Victorian mixture of entertainment and education. In fact, his mother had trained as a kindergarten teacher and was very interested in the role between learning and play, something that um, emerges very much in Cornell's own interests later in life. So on the left is one of Cornell's earliest collages, and on the right, one by this German surrealist artist, Max Ernst. And Ernst is often cited as the sort of reason or the, the primary influence on Cornell's art. And indeed, surrealism was an important context. As I mentioned, it was one in which he realized that he could be an artist. And there are certain points of convergence, particularly Cornell's use of techniques, so physical found materials, but equally juxtaposition. But then he, he very soon in his career seeks to define himself. He's not really one for groups. Um, whilst he has good relationships with individual surrealists, he doesn't want to be a formal part of that group. He writes the, to the director of MoMA that he in fact doesn't share in the subconscious theories of the surrealists at all. And he defines what he's doing in relation to theirs as their black magic and what he wanted to do was white magic. And really at the heart of that is his um, discomfort with the erotic or sexual imagery that you often find in surrealist works. And what he was trying to chase after instead was much more to do with our early discoveries of the world, but very much our conscious um, but innocent wonder when we are young. And he really felt that that sort of freedom and curiosity that characterizes the childhood imagination is something that we'd, we should strive to retain as adults. Often his sources are indeed drawn from children's literature. So one book in particular was called Magical Experiments or Science in Play. And it contained illustrations with demonstrations of, that you could perform with kind of humble domestic objects to understand the laws of physics like uh, pressure or gravity. And you can see there's a sort of exploding bottle on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, Cornell's made his own intervention with this rather elegantly dressed man who's fixatedly watching a coin spinning. Again, it's that sense of trying to understand how things work. Um, but Cornell has, of course, um, given him a colander to wear on his head, as if he's a sort of child who's raided the kitchen cupboards to dress up as an astronaut or a knight. And again, it's that Cornell's linkage between our freedom and our ability as children to see objects as other things and to make up stories. And he, in fact, linked that childhood imagination with what he considered to be its adult counterpart, which is the scientific drive to understand the world, to never stop questioning. This is almost in between a shadow box and a collage. It's a sort of material collage. It doesn't have a lot of depth to it, but it is made of physical objects. Um, most of Cornell's works, I'm afraid, don't come across very well in reproduction, so I do hope that you've had the chance to go upstairs and look at them. The Pipe Blowing Bubbles was another image of one of Cornell's favorite childhood books in a similar vein. It was called Soap Bubbles and the Forces That Mold Them, originally published in the late 19th century in Britain. And this image of play, childhood play, is also fused with some other references. I think that the clay pipe that you see here is also a nod to Magritte's famous painting of a pipe. Um, but equally, what's going on here is something slightly different to Magritte's play of word and image. And I want to point out the way that Cornell is working all the time with textures. They're just as important as the imagery that he uses. So it might be difficult to 
discern on here, but these soap bubbles, as it were, issuing from this pipe, uh, they are in fact glass discs that have collaged onto them images of shells and fossils. And the sort of shininess of the discs means that they change as you move around them against this black background, and the shells appear as if they are sort of floating within these bubbles. And it's a very potent image about the passage of time. If you think of a soap bubble, which has gone in the blink of an eye, uh, and then think of you know, what shells and fossils meant about the revelation of geological time uh, in the 19th century, it becomes a much more complex image. So Cornell's often, uh, these playful images can be read on many levels. The relationship between motion and time was another fascination of Cornell's and indeed um, how we perceive images, so optics. This, on the left, we have a tiny little bell jar. You'll see how small it is upstairs with this sort of idea of suspended motion, the horse mid-leap. And on the right, we have a game-like object that Cornell made. Um, he's adapted what was um, a Victorian game. Um, this is a mechanical thermotrope, but you can do the same, uh, you can have the same effect just by printing two different images on either side of a disc and stringing them on a piece of cord, winding it up and pulling it apart. It was a Victorian game that would have been familiar from his childhood. And he's collaged this on one side with acrobats and the others with uh, night skies. So when they spin, you sort of see um, um, acrobats leaping over shooting stars and things. It's a really beautiful um, and poetic game. And there are many works in this section, as you'll see upstairs, that draw on the kind of language of games and toys from Cornell's own childhood. His protagonists are often also children, such as here, this Mademoiselle Ferretti, who, in fact, it's a sort of cabinet photograph from 19th century France that he's framed in this shadow box, which dates to 1933. So, as far as we know, this is his earliest extant shadow box, and he probably made it using uh, a pre-existing box that he bought from an, from an oriental shop. Um, there was a tradition in the East of having glass-fronted boxes like this to display porcelain, um, so he's bought that and he's kind of uh, filled it with his own imagine, imagined stories. Well, here in this one, we have a boy who's sort of performing uh, poses. It's a bit like a game of charades, but again, it relates to his interest in the relationship between uh, early photography and the emergence of cinema, sequential imagery and animation. So these are things that you see recurrently in Cornell's art. Of course, the, this was the basis of what later became the moving picture or cinema and film as we know it today, and Cornell was a huge fan of the movies. He's often seeking structures and compositions that retain some sense of spontaneity and dynamism, and often working on the sort of boundary between the two-dimensional and the three-dimensional. So this is a collage that is a sort of Leporello concertina format, and if you look at it closely, you'll see that uh, you can read it from one side to the other, and it kind of conflates geographical travel with time travel. So you have different countries referenced, but also different times of day. This Leporello format that you see was actually born of his collection as well. The 19th century travel guides that I mentioned before often contained in the back these concertina maps or uh, illustrated panoramas of cities that you could pull out. And this was the way that Cornell sort of imagined the various cities in Europe that he was often known to talk about. And indeed, this work is titled Panorama. And the final thing I wanted to say about this work is that it's difficult to see on the slide, actually, but 
once it's set up, it's probably one of the largest things that Cornell made once it's stretched out, in fact. But what happens is you, as the viewer, you kind of activate and animate the imagery. If you move from one side of it to another, you'll see a completely different sequence of images. And that's something that you find in a lot of Cornell's work, just as in the game, the viewer is kind of part of making the making the images come into being. Um, and it's something that's really inherent to the shadow box as well, this very peculiar format that's in between two dimensions and three dimensions. Cornell applies the principles of collage to all of the material that he worked with. So when he wanted to make films, he went about it in precisely the same way as his assemblages. He gathered many and various sources of footage from natural history films to um, Old, old trick films from the late 19th century in Paris, um, to newsreels, anything and everything. And he physically cut them up and spliced them together to make his own montage films. And this really was an entirely radical technique. I think it was still considered to be fairly radical when people were doing it in the 1970s. So Cornell is really looked on as a progenitor of avant-garde film. Um, this particular one is called Thimble Theatre, and it's almost like a sort of Noah's Ark. It's full of animals from, from different sources. And that leads on very neatly to our next section, which is collecting and classification. Of course, these are themes that are relevant to Cornell's overall approach, um, but similarly, his box constructions are based on principles of selection, arrangement, and enclosure, and the concept of the series is also very important. And this is a section that explores the very different types of box construction that Cornell made. He was incredibly interested in the history of collecting in Europe from the 16th century Wunderkammer, or Cabinet of Curiosities, which um, this is a clipping from one of his files, one of many. And he was interested in this Cabinet of Curiosities, which was really conceived as a material encyclopedia of the world. He was equally interested in the subsequent development and evolution of the modern museum over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. This is actually from 1735. It's not one of Cornell's clippings, but he does reference it in one of his works. And it's kept just um, in the Linnaean Society, which is in the courtyard of Burlington House. It was made in 1735, and it charts the animal kingdom. Carl Linnaeus is really the founder of the modern system of rational taxonomy in natural history that we still use today. And as I say, it's referenced in this wonderful work. Um, and we've pulled out the particular bottle that you can see where he references the binomial classification system that Linnaeus invented. But this is a really star piece. It's perhaps the most compelling example from Cornell's series of museums. These chest type works were made also from pre-existing boxes. And here he's giving us a natural history of Egypt, but it's very much Egypt via Europe. It's dedicated to the 19th century Belle Epoque dancer, Cleo de Marode, and he's linked her with her namesake, Queen Cleopatra of Egypt. It's part specimen set, part jewelry box, um, as only Cornell could do, really. And he's playing with the labels and the materials, what's in them. There are lots of interesting jokes in there and sort of playing with how objects can mean things. The ideas of samples or souvenirs or relics are very relevant. And he's also playing with these languages of natural history and anthropology and even archeology. span When you take the bottles out, there's a horizontal glass plate and you can look through it to see red sand that's sort of strewn with archeological fragments. And this was made in 1940, a time when we were still 
excavating in, in Egypt and discovering much more about Egyptian burial practices. So there's a lot, lot, lot of levels going on. This box resembles a different sort of uh, precedent, I suppose, that being the apothecary cabinet of old and looks to that older tradition before the advent of chemistry in the practice of alchemy. So the material transformation is an idea that's very relevant to Cornell's work. It's titled pharmacy, and this is interesting in itself. Cornell himself would never have taken any drugs of any kind because he was a devout Christian scientist. So this is a religion that we now know today um, primarily for its disavowal of traditional medicine, but that was really part of a much larger philosophical framework, which is quite difficult to summarize, but I'll try. Uh, essentially, it's mind over matter. So Mary Baker Eddy founded this religion in 1875. It's, it's a branch of Christianity. Um, she wrote this text, and it's... The text is called uh, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. And essentially what she says in it is that God, spirit, mind or soul is the only real substance. So it sort of privileges your inner subjective reality over the objective reality of what's happening outside in the world. And that puts quite an interesting complexion on the objects that Cornell worked with, I think. So we could then interpret this pharmacy as a series of tonics for the imagination or for the soul as opposed to for the body. But there's another interesting story to this work, which is that it was owned by Marcel Duchamp. He was an admirer of Cornell's work, as we heard, but he also um, was in direct contact with Cornell during the early 1940s. And Cornell, in fact, helped to manufacture some of Duchamp's works. Some of you may know his famous Boiton Valise, which was a miniature museum of Duchamp's own oeuvre, and Cornell physically manufactured some of those. So they had a very close creative rapport. Having learnt some carpentry from one of his neighbours, Cornell experimented with the structures of his boxes, varying scale and proportion and also internal divisions. And I return again to the idea of the series. He called, um, he called these many different versions of different types of ideas variants. And working in series was very important to him. But it's important to understand that his, these series were open-ended. They weren't intended to necessarily be seen as a whole. Um, they were a method of proceeding so that he could, through sort of trial and error, repetition and variation, extend and expand his ideas. And so these are examples from the Avery series. I'm going to focus just on one particular work, Habitat Group for a Shooting Gallery of 1943. And once you get attuned to Cornell's scale, this work is, becomes quite surprising. It contains a piece of deliberately shattered glass and these very um, gestural flicks of paint, the red paint, of course, reminding us of blood. And Cornell's often thought of as being slightly cut off in his own dream world. But in fact, he was reading the newspapers constantly, he was listening to the radio, he was very up together with what was happening both in the world, and of course this is probably his most direct response to World War II. He was an ardent pacifist and he really was uh, absolutely distraught by the loss of life but also the loss of culture in Europe during the Second World War. So this is a piece that, in which the parrots kind of stand in for humans in some way, and that often is happening in Cornell's work. But equally, it's a work that takes the temperature of the New York art scene at the time. 
If you think of what was about to happen, Jackson Pollock was about to take the art world by storm with abstract expressionist painting. And indeed, Cornell exhibited at the Charles Egan Gallery in 1949 and throughout the 1950s. And that was really the home of abstract expressionist artists. So he counted among his acquaintances and friends, people like Willem de Kooning and also Mark Rothko. So the next section is observation and exploration. If the previous section dealt primarily with the structures of Cornell's boxes, this one deals more with his imagery. Cornell was a great observer of life. One only has to look at his extensive diaries to understand that he wasn't just a collector of things, he was a collector of ephemeral experiences. He was constantly noting down things that he saw, places he went, um, and the, collectively, these diaries number some 30,000 different pages. They've, they've been digitized by the Archives of American Art, and so you can read them online. And really, he trained, he's working in microscopic detail, you know, noting anything and everything, and he had this amazing memory. So often you see him return to a sheet that he wrote out, typed out three or four years before, and add an extra detail that's come to him. So he's often... Um, constructing this kind of myriad web of associations. And he's absorbing the world around him like a sponge. Another thing that we know from his diaries is that in 1944, he worked over the summer in a garden center near Flushing. And for this purpose, he bought a bicycle. Now, this is a significant event in Cornell's life because it gives him a lot more independence. And he begins to explore rural areas, particularly around Flushing and also uh, further out on Long Island. And then in the 1950s, he begins to take regular summer holidays with his sisters who have left the family home and married, and they both live out on Long Island. So he goes to West Hampton. And from the mid-1940s onwards, the natural world emerges as um, an important theme in Cornell's work. This is a photograph of Cornell's telescope, um, and apparently it's been photographed on his favorite beach. Uh, Cornell's great-nephew, having not had any children of his own, we invited Cornell's great-nephew, Edward Batchelor, to come and officially open the exhibition, and he took this photograph for us. Um, Cornell was an avid stargazer. You often find in his notes diagrams of the constellations in relation to the quince tree in his backyard. And actually, when Ed spoke at the opening, he took the image of the telescope as a kind of metaphor for Cornell's mind, often bringing distant things um, closer in time or geographically. But Cornell wasn't only an observer of the world around him. He, he can be understood as a beachcomber of culture, too. And his observations were no less acute when he trained his eye on representations such as these historical prints of different uh, astronomers of the past. Of course, to see starlight is to look back in time, but for Cornell, images could connect times and places in many different ways. He, for example, felt that to see constellations in the random patterns of stars in the sky was in fact to be looking through the eyes of earlier astronomers, and he loved the myths and stories associated with the constellations. Um, often his collages feature these sky charts, and they are as much art as science. Cornell was very interested in earlier eras when that distinction hadn't been drawn between art and science, and both people working in those two different disciplines were really united by their desire to understand the world. 
And he made copious files, as I mentioned before. This one is an example headed natural philosophy. And that's a phrase that really harks back to that time when we didn't have this specialization of disciplines. And they often contain very diverse imagery, this one all to do with the natural world and the relationships and forces that make the natural world function. Cornell called in his notes, he called these dossiers that he was making explorations, and he described making them as a kind of imaginative pictorial research, which he likened to the image making of poetry. So for him, both his collection and making these paper clippings of files was the equivalent of sketching. You know, he didn't draw and plan out how a box was going to be. But through this very richly associative process, working directly with materials, he comes up with some of his most uh, multi-layered visual motifs. For example, um, the soap bubble set. And it's an image we touched on before, but one that he extends further when he begins to make these large boxes in this... Very, for Cornell, this is a very grand scale of landscape format. And the soap bubble is reimagined. The soap bubble here is um, embodied by this antique print of the moon, the very, very delicately made to describe every single crater of the surface of the moon. And again, Cornell's forging connections between traditions in art and science. A lot of the objects that feature in his works, and particularly the soap bubble series, recall the Vanitas tradition, the 17th century still life, you know, different drinking glasses, pipes, symbols of the transience of worldly pleasures. Equally though, the structures of the soap bubble set series recall orreries, which were developed in England in the 18th century as mechanical models of the solar system. And here are some examples from one of Cornell's dossiers. And you can begin to see how he's collecting different imagery that's informing the types of uh, work that he's making. So paintings or reproductions of paintings by Manet and Chardin. In the 18th century, the soap bubble was an allegory for the fleeting nature of innocence. By the 20th century, Einstein was using it to describe the model of an expanding universe. So it has multiple meanings for Cornell. Similar themes evolve in Cornell's Celestial Navigation series. And I think what's often overlooked is this breakthrough that Cornell makes when he begins to treat the interior structure of the shadow box as a metaphorical space. You know, the birds in cages, one could imagine that they're on a one-to-one -one scale, or the palace is a miniaturized version of rational space. But in these works, Cornell allows multiple scales of time and space to coexist quite happily. He's always linking the macrocosm and the microcosm. So here we have a view out on, it's almost as if we're looking out of the cockpit of a spaceship, but in the sand tray below, there's a drawer that you can pull out and tip up and down, and it is lined with um, a similar uh, sky chart, a deep, deep blue, which is one of Cornell's favorite colors, but it includes white sand, ball bearings, and shells in it. So we're sort of back on Earth, on the seashore, and looking very closely at small objects. So that's what I mean about these, this expansion and contraction that he is able to perform, this kind of, I think, white magic is a good way to describe it. And within this metaphorical space, materials are able to function in a metaphorical capacity, particularly sand. We have the sort of proverbial uncountable grains of sand. We also have associations with um, egg timers and counting hours. And 
the sun, it's a very beautiful experience. We tried to capture it in a video for you upstairs, but when one tilts the tray, the sand sort of moves softly at first, and if you tilt it to another angle, the ball bearings shoot past at a completely different speed, almost like shooting stars. So with very, very humble materials, Cornell's able to describe very complex relationships of how, for example, the movement of the planets and the moons govern our tides and our... Um, he's always linking these different cycles uh, in the cosmos. The other major series in this section are the Medici slot machines. I think only an imagination as various as Cornell could come up with such a concept. And they're regarded by many as Cornell's most powerful works. They refer, of course, to the Medici, the rulers of Florence during the Italian Renaissance. He made many, many variants on just three core images that you see below. Uh, portraits of children by Pinturicchio, Bronzino, and Angosola. And Cornell didn't know these paintings having seen them in galleries. He knew them only through reproduction. And he's used photostats, um, which is a kind of early form of projection copier, to reproduce them in black and white. And then he's put them behind colored glass, and they almost begin to feel more like sepia photographs. He's sort of telescoping the historical distance of these sitters and making them feel more like universal children. And they really are an extraordinary combination of high art and popular culture. These stately portraits set in tripartite structures that recall an altarpiece, perhaps. Uh, they also make us think of the cabinetry of very early arcade games. And of course, this is a big part of Cornell's youth, going to amusement arcades at Coney Island, for example. He had a huge nostalgia um, about these kind of trips that he took in his childhood before everything changed when his father died. And they are full of animation and bright colors and the promise of prizes and toy blocks and jacks and marbles and all the excitement of those childhood games. That's something that also comes across in a series of collages that Cornell made called the Penny Arcades. And it's clear um, in this series that, that one of his interests is in fact, uh, in these coin drop machines, it's really to do with the games of chance, um, which, uh, you know, putting things in and seeing what happens. And on the reverse of this collage, he's included an illustration of Pascal's triangle, which is, of course, a mathematical theory to describe probability. So ideas of fate and chance are very much present in the Medici series. And I think that that's clear when we look at this somber young princess. She's seen through the crosshairs almost like a gun sight. And that would be a sort of language that Cornell knew also from the shooting arcades in Coney Island. But equally, these, uh, they're actually on, the crosshairs are actually on internal panes of glass, so these are among Cornell's most complex structures, and there's lots of plays of shadow and light. But equally, these crosshairs could refer to the invention of linear perspective during the Renaissance. And the princess is flanked by maps of her own territories and uh, alongside with toy blocks, numbers, again, the sense of dice or chance and games, but also play and learning and innocence. And in many ways, I think Cornell conceived of the Renaissance as the childhood of the modern world, the birth of culture and enlightenment, the rise of the individual and of humanist thought. And when you look at a work like this, one can't help but notice that this boy is sort of staring out into his future. He's perhaps 13 or 14, the age at which Cornell lost his own father. And perhaps it's an uncertain future. Again, Cornell began this series during World War II. 
Um, this, this work took 10 years to complete, apparently. That's the date that he's left on the inside frame. And we have the, the two columns on either side with these kind of flickering possibilities, perhaps different fates that are yet to befall him with two cubes at the bottom, again, like dice. You know, he's roll, rolled the dice, what's going to happen? And I think it's the way in which Cornell is able to layer his own personal biography with his personal memories, with cultural histories, and also references to political events that make these such a powerful uh, series. They really do have an extraordinary presence when you see them in real life. So by now you'll have a good enough sense of Cornell to understand me when I say that daydreaming was part and parcel of his creative process. I think he felt it was an entirely legitimate uh, way to spend his time to stare out of a window and think whatever came into his head. So this creative process is one that was um, often driven by his thoughts and reveries about different people. Cornell's often characterized as someone who was a loner. However, you know, he's constantly accompanied by his brother and equally he was engaged with a kind of pantheon of creative kindred spirits from the past and present, both real and fictional. And there's an idea in this section as well about returning to the main theme of the exhibition about travel and imaginary travel. Cornell's success by the 1950s would have allowed him to travel if he had chosen to, but he deliberately didn't. And I think one has to divine from that that essentially what he was most interested in was the state of yearning itself, wanting something rather than having it. And that is very much embodied in the structure of the shadow box. Everything's there for you to see, but it's sort of sealed behind glass. And it's that tension, I think, that's very important in Cornell's work. And his reveries were often inspired by people. Um, so I'll run through a few of them now. This might not look like a portrait. It looks like an ode to the city of Naples, which Cornell was particularly interested in. He had huge files, and if you know, although he'd never been there, he could probably give you directions if you were lost. Um, but in fact, it's a veiled portrait of one of Cornell's favorite 19th century ballerinas. Now, these were his unrequited loves, the ballerinas of the Romantic era and also the opera singers. And he loved the idea that he could never, ever have seen them dance. You know, they died before the age of video recording or sound recording, and he, he could only reconstruct and imagine their voices. Uh, Fanny Torito was one of his favorites, and he associated her with the role of Ondine, which is referenced in a little shell on the left-hand side, and also with the city of Naples, where she was born and performed. So he could never have known these people, but he studied them with passionate connoisseurship, and quite often sort of uh, semi-fictional biographies emerge, such as this one, um, it's dedicated to the King Ludwig, of, King Ludwig II of Bavaria, who was a real monarch, but one who was engaged in his own fantastical projects of building very extravagant fairy tale castles. He was also known as the Swan King due to his penchant for these uh, regal birds, and Cornell got particularly interested in him. And it's an example of where Cornell, one of Cornell's dossiers has grown into an artwork in its own right, and he's contained it within this valise, so it all packs down to look like a fairly ordinary suitcase, but it contains this treasure trove. He was also interested in archetypal figures, such as the Piero, who we see here, represented in a reproduction of Votto's famous painting, Gilles, which hangs in the Louvre. And I urge you all to look at this one closely. 
uh, Cornell is often playing with the interior volume of the box, and this work contains five internal mirrors. So it really is a rather sort of phantasmagorical effect when you approach it closely. And indeed, the stage and also literature were a source of inspiration for Cornell. On the left, um, this rather stage set-like um, story that's related to Dumas' Three Musketeers. And on the right, a collage dedicated to The Sorrows of Young Werther. That was the first novel of Goethe. And Cornell was very interested in characters like Goethe who bridged gaps between literature and other fields. So Goethe also wrote about color theory. Um, the, the figure of the polymath rates very highly in his creative pantheon. And that's something that Linda Hartigan talked about in her lecture on Friday night, which I think will be available soon on our website. So if you're interested in that, please do find, go to our website and find that talk. But equally, there are other people like engineers. This, this work is a sort of abstract portrait of the French aviator Louis Blériot, who was the first to fly the English Channel in an um, engine-powered craft. And finally, um, Emily Dickinson, who is an American poet who died before Cornell was born. But she too had a, a sort of very stationary physical life, but an incredibly free imagination. So just to conclude, I think Cornell's all-encompassing vision is very clear in this final section. He just didn't see boundaries between high art or popular culture, between old and new, or science and art. And I think it's as much in the way that his independence, the independence of his artistic voice, meant that he was so highly regarded by these successive generations of avant-garde artists. On the other hand, you have this great celebration of creativity in very diverse fields, and that's very much returned by his passionate following amongst the poets, writers, musicians, set designers, and filmmakers of today. I think of him as a sort of a quiet maverick, because really what he did was create one of the most original bodies of work of any 20th century artist globally. Um, and he broke open many conventions and you can see in different strains of contemporary art many of the sort of boundaries that he surpassed. But these very bold strategies of appropriation and montage weren't themselves in themselves his goal. It all came to him very naturally. Working with the second hand was just the only way that he could find to express himself. And he, you know, he, he wasn't trying to sort of challenge the status quo of art in the way that his good friend Marcel Duchamp was. Really, his works are designed to communicate the wonder that he found in daily life and also in the richness of human culture, past and present. So for me, he's a very, the message of his art is a very inspiring one. It's about the power of the imagination. How lucky we are that we can follow in his imaginary travels through the artworks that he made. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.